Soccer Show and a show where you, the listener, pitch us some questions and we attempt to answer them. Today we're discussing the most overrated goals, the top contenders for the women's Euros and the nebulous and mysterious world of stoppage time. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today is a man who, unlike Paolo Dybala, is very much wanted and appreciated by his team, Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Oh, wow. I'll, I'll take that and shots fired at the ball at the same time. It must be hard to be a footballer of his prestige and still have that sort of story hanging over you or that sort of narrative hanging over you, such that there was that charity game in Florida this week and he was involved. And it was sort of like, oh, you're involved too, huh? You feel kind of like you don't quite fit, but okay, why not? Yeah. And that's a strange thing to think about a player who is way better than I am and will make way more, more, way more money than I ever will. It is very strange. It's strange to think like the market for Neymar, should he go on the market suit, is quite small, isn't it? And yeah. for someone like Dybala, getting Barcelona saying he's not interested, they'll buy anyone who's big on Instagram. And yet, they're not buying him. Very strange. Very strange, Tay-Tay. I don't give know. Give it time. Give it time. We'll give we'll it see. time. Maybe he needs a few more followers on the old IG. Uh, also joining us, Tay-Tay, is a man who's in his element watching uh, the US Open Cup this week. He had giant killings in California, red cards in the Hudson Derby. Are you not entertained, Joe Lowry? I'm so entertained, Ryan. The only thing that I, I wish had happened, and this is no offense to supporting Kansas City fans, is just for them to have not obliterated Union Omaha quite like they did. Um, that was sad and slightly hard to watch. But still, I, I really do enjoy the U.S. Open Cup. There's one lower division team still left, one semifinal still to be played as well. Maybe Sacramento Republic can do it and become the next Raging Rhinos. Probably not, but maybe, maybe, maybe. Was, it, was that the team that go, was going to be an MLS team but is not now? Yes, Sacramento, I'm sure you've just reminded at least some people that listen to this show who are in Sacramento about their sadness. Yes. Sorry, guys. Sorry. <laughs> it's, Ryan, you're, it's okay. You're verified on Instagram, so you can kind of do whatever you want. That's right. Barcelona don't want to buy me, though, Joe. <laughs> Guess not. It's all Give good. Give it time. Give, Give it, it time. time. Uh, yeah, you're right. Thanks, Taylor. I'm going to keep my chin up. Uh, joining us, gents, is a man who's had his love of Hakan Chalanolu reaffirmed this week. Is that right, Graham Ruffin? <laughs> Oh, he's always been one of my favourites. I'm, I'm, I, I realised I had that reiterated to me, to me the other day with his comments on Zlatan Ibrahimovic, a very tires, tiresome 40-year-old man who thinks he is actually 20 years old. Yeah, so Chanalu, who of course uh, may have switched sides in the old Milan debate, said of Zlatan, he is a 40-year-old man, not 18, so I wouldn't do this sort of thing at his age. He just likes being the centre of attention. He didn't contribute to the Scudetto oh, this season. So Woof! Whoa. He barely played. In Woof! my veins. But he'll do everything. <laughs> right in my veins. Focus anyway. <laughs> oh, Graham, is your schadenfreude needle just going tripping right now? I have already bought my Hack and Chonoglu shirt for next season, Inter Milan shirt, <laughs> and just number one on the back. I don't actually know what his squad number is. I just asked for Chonoglu, number one, baby. That's what's on the back of the shirt. <laughs> Wonderful stuff, Graham. Also in Graham-related news, I saw on Twitter from oh. La Source Parisienne, um, Nike is seriously considering offering a home jersey for several clubs, including PSG, which will be worn for two years. From an ecological point of view, it's interesting. From the point of view of the wallet as well, you buy a single home jersey that would last for two seasons it's almost like they're trying to be like mls graham (laughs) 
So I read that story as well, and everything makes sense about that, the ecological impact and fans not having to buy a shirt every season, but yet my internal voice was still going, no, shirts every two seasons are going to be less experimental, there's going to be less designs, and if you end up with a shirt you don't like as your team, you're stuck with it for two seasons, whereas at least at the moment you get one every year, but... I guess if you're being boring and rational, it does make sense. I think would it would it help you feel better to know that, like in my mind, I immediately go to they're only doing that so that they can then have a series of one-off third kits that they'll just do every <laughs> month. They'll have yeah. a different third kit because hey, we stuck with one for two years, so we can experiment with third. Yeah, like Napoli. So they'll have one home <laughs> kit for two seasons, but thirty-two away <laughs> and third See, kits. You get it. Yeah, you get it. You might be onto yes. something there. I imagine uh, the Rutherland family sitting at the breakfast table this morning and Mrs. Rutherland looking up, having read this news, saying, Graham, does this mean you're going to halve your budget for shirts next season? And you're just looking up from your newspaper (laughs) and just shaking your head. No, no, it doesn't mean that. Yeah, just means I'm going to buy more club shirts to compensate for the ones that aren't releasing shirts that year. Ah, wonderful stuff. Uh, I think it will never happen because clubs love making money from making a shirt every year, but it is nice to think that Nike are thinking from an ecological standpoint. Um, I think there's probably many other things they could do to help that kind of thing. But hey, that's another conversation for another day. Why don't we, gents, get to some listener questions? We're going to start off with Mr. Ben Nadu, who has emailed in to ask, what is a goal everyone loves but you think is overrated? Ben's pick is Robin Van Persie's diving header in the World Cup against Spain. It isn't all that cool or impressive. (laughs) Really? Really, Ben? Really, Ben? What, what, a, what a gut punch that is, by the way, because I think that RVP header against Spain at the 2014 World Cup, it might be my favourite ever goal, not involving a team I support. I still think it's completely unique. So, yeah, I'm not, not sure if I agree with I, that. But everyone is entitled to their opinion, I guess. Yeah, I respect Ben so much for that take. I don't agree with it at all. I, I scrolled through. I did a ton of research. Okay, I guess I'm just going to answer this question in my own way, Ryan, and then I'll flip it back to you to actually do your job. Um I looked at so many goals trying to answer this question. I read so many things and so many different articles about overrated goals, and a lot of them were were bad articles and all that stuff. I made it through so much research, and I couldn't really find one. I've learned that I am extremely impressed by pretty much any goal. Ideally, it's intentional, but even some of the fluke ones, I think, are are pretty darn entertaining and (laughs) impressive. But the Van Persie one, as I was looking on Reddit, so this was our soccer, I read a whole Reddit post about this and a bunch of comments. I believe the only one that someone suggested as potentially being overrated that was downvoted and had, like, I don't really know how Reddit works, but negative karma? Is that is that what it's called, Taylor? Do you yeah. use Reddit? I do. It had minus. It was in the negative. Was someone suggesting that this Van Persie goal was overrated? So hmm. I don't really have an answer to Ben's question, but I do appreciate Ben just fully going out on this limb. <laughs> Joe, Joe, I have a question for you because I had roughly the same answer. I think I ended up coming up with one, which I will share in a moment. But I, I'm, I'm interested, why do you think it is that you couldn't think of one? Is that not how you think about goals? Because I think that's what it is for me, is that I don't really remember them as being iconic and amazing versus overrated. I think I just remember them as being like, yeah, that was pretty good. He scored and that's hard. Yeah, that's that's exactly right, Taylor. I'm impressed by pretty much every goal because there's so few of them in soccer. It's not that I'm wowed or or my jaw's dropping at every single goal that's scored, but there are some that stick out in my head 
in a positive way. Very, very few that stick out in my head in a negative way, other than ones that maybe have affected the teams that I that I care about in some way. I think about that Mbappe goal against Real Madrid recently. I think about uh, some of the goals that Real Madrid scored in the Champions League. And those were just incredible moments. Not all of them are technically brilliant, but for me, that doesn't really take away from the moment or from the context surrounding those goals. So I, I think we're on a similar level and in a pretty similar place there, Taylor. All right, Graham, the Americans have spoken, those who were born with positivity <laughs> in their veins. It's time for the Europeans to pour scorn <laughs> on cynics. some really good goals. This is where we shine, Graham. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'll start you off because I went for some of the most highly rated goals. I looked at Pushkas Award winners. And I found right. a couple which I thought were a bit overrated, and a couple in the last few years. Uh, Hongmin Sun won in 2020 with that. Do you remember that marauding goal against Bernie when he ran from inside his own half? He I just do. kept going and going and going. No Is one... that the one where nobody within a 50-yard stretch made a tackle and he That's just kept it. going? That was exactly my point. <laughs> no one bothered to lunge or try and get the ball off of him, so he just kept going and tapped it in. I think that one, in the context of Pushkas Award winners, I found a bit baffling. And two years before that, Graham, Moslar... Uh, I think it was against Everton, he won the 2018 award. He did that goal which he scores maybe every two weeks where he weaves in from the right-hand side of the box, beats a couple of defenders and then curls it inside the keeper's right post. Um, I don't even think that was his best goal of that season. So I I was surprised that that one won. So there's where I'm setting the bar. Push cashable winners, which uh, uh, didn't impress me much to quote Shania Twain. So I have got two (laughs) suggestions. One is the Wayne Rooney overhead kick against Manchester City uh, from Manchester United. And had he caught it flush on the foot, I would have said one of the best goals of of all time in the Premier League. And it is kind of, people talk about it in that way, but he, it's not even that he hits it off his ankle or slightly off the shin. It is fully off his shin guard, like right in the middle of of the shin. So I'm not entirely sure how much control over that that he has, and obviously it's impressive to a degree that he manages to get up and and uh, kind of contort his body in that way. And obviously I'm not taking away, it's a big goal in a derby and it deserves to be played over and over again, but maybe not as one of the best Premier League goals of all time. And then the other one that oh, oh, I am Greg, going can to... I, can, before you say it, can I guess what it is? I, I, you, I think you might be able to guess what it is. I've mentioned it before in this podcast. Go for it. Is it Dennis Bergkamp against Newcastle? Yes, absolutely <laughs> it is. Last for me. Last for me. <laughs> So when I used to when I used to write for Bleach Report, they asked for you to provide a biography, but make it slightly uh, fun and quirky, not just every, uh, places other places that you've written for. So mine was like written for blah blah, and uh, Dennis Bergkamp never meant it. That was my biography for Bleach Report for a number of years, and I still stand by that opinion. As I say, I, I've, I think I've already said my piece about that 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 goal on this podcast. It's a brilliant piece of improvi- improvisation. But as that ball comes into Bearcamp with his back to the defender, there is just no way he means to take that touch, in my opinion. The genius is in how he reacts so quickly to the touch and spins around the defender and makes it work. But if he doesn't plan it the, that way from the start, it, it loses some of the shine, in my well, opinion. And I loved, I loved Bearcamp as a player and I've read his book and it's really interesting, but that goal is glorified a bit too much. That depends when you, when you consider the start of the move for him then, Graham doesn't it? If, if the start is when the, the ball leaves the assist, the assist provider's foot, then mm. yes, but he, he the improvisation in itself is what makes it great, right? It is, it is still a great goal, and this is where there's a bit of nuance in my opinion on this this goal. It is a, it is a very good goal, but I'm not sure 
when I think of Dennis Bergkamp, I think of his best goal as at the volley in the 1998 World Cup for the Netherlands. Oh, yeah. That, that is the best Bergkamp goal, in my opinion, because the Agreed. balls come over his shoulder, the angle is so tight, he strikes it so flush. Everything about that, the technique is perfectly, he plans it and executes it perfectly. Whereas this goal, he volley, doesn't agree, plan it in this way. Not a volley, but agreed. <laughs> okay, well, right. if we're being pedantic, then Ryan Bailey, yes, not a volley, but a great goal. Nonetheless, this one is not as good as that goal, in my opinion. I have held my rage as long as I care to hold it in. All right, let's talk about this for a moment. Because first of all, Graham, that, that amazing volley against Argentina, which I agree with you, is, is one of the best goals. It's not one of my favorite goals. But he, he controls it with the first touch. He megs with the second. He volleys with the third. Does he mean to do the meg the whole way, or is that improvised in the moment? I think, I mean, this is, I'm on uh, shaky ground here where I'm trying to here look into go. the mind of Dennis Bergkamp. I think he recognises when he brings that ball down at, in the 98 World Cup, that goal, that's the one we're talking about here. When he brings that down, he recognises he's going to have to beat a man. And so I don't know whether he has entirely planned that out because I don't think that's how a human mind works. But I do think he's already he's already thinking of what he's going to have to do next after he brings it down to then make the defender yeah. and uh, and then score. Yeah, I agree. and I agree with you that the human mind, especially in that like the tightness of time it takes to figure that out, is probably just sort of like control, uh, like cut back. Oh, the Meg's there. Like it's it's just like half fragmented thoughts that he has to decide upon in the moment and does. So, do you feel like that's what happens with that sort of spin against Newcastle? Is that the ball's coming in and because I I have a hard time thinking it was a miscontrol that he then reacts to. So, in my mind, he has to know roughly what he's aiming for. Do you disagree with that? Do you think it might have been a miscontrol? Yeah, I think I think initially it's a miscontrol. I, I I look at the shape of his where his foot is and where he's placed, and I think if if you were trying to do what he did with that ball, you wouldn't you wouldn't intentionally put your foot in that position. Like a kind of side, like a side foot control of the ball. The ball bounces off. And as I say, the genius is, and within a split second, he recognizes where that ball is going to spin and where it's going to go. And he's reacting a million times quicker than the defender behind him. So as I say, there's still a moment of genius in that, but he didn't plan it that way. And there is a, a miscontrol. I think what the criteria that I looked for here was great, great goals that just have that tiny little flaw in them that just takes a little bit of shine off them. It's not. I'm not arguing that it's not a great goal. It's just it's not as great as a lot of people say it is. Yeah, I hear it. You drink your haterade, and then you <laughs> uh, came out with this take. I just think for for the, if it were he hits it and then turns the same way, I think I'd be able to agree. But that he hits it and then goes the opposite way and goes around the defender, just to me is a little bit of focus. It's a little bit of intentionality. Maybe we disagree. I prefer to think that I've gone the legal route, uh, known as putting crazy on the stand, and I feel like I've proven that. <laughs> there's some flaws in Graham's logic uh, but I think ultimately uh, I'm not sure I have but I think <laughs> okay, ultimately what I would agree with is that goals that feature technical errors and I would say the Rooney one is a good example of that uh, our late co-host Daryl Grove was long a critic of that goal because he shinned it and it wasn't an overhead kick it wasn't a bicycle it was a shin kick and he wouldn't let that one go I feel like I'd be a bit hypocritical if I advocated uh, that that wasn't a good goal nowadays since I long held that it was. So, Graham, I think that's a good shout. But I agree. Opposition errors, technical errors. And that's where I would say the Ronaldinho free kick against England. Maybe he meant to do it. Maybe that was a thing he was aiming for. To me, that doesn't matter as much because ultimately it is just terrible goalkeeping from David Seaman. And he reads it wrong. He comes off his line too much. He backpedals. He doesn't get the jump. And it's it's a famous goal. It's an amazing goal. But simultaneously, if you're just watching the goalkeeper, that never should have gone in. And he just makes a series of 
increasingly high-profile mistakes culminating in his own humiliation. But I have a hard time saying that that's this amazing moment where Ronaldinho spotted an opportunity and took it, even though that's how it's been kind of constructed since then. I think he's putting a long, hopeful ball into the box, and it carries a bit too far. Goalkeeper doesn't read it. Into the net he goes, and into history goes Ronaldinho. A series of high-profile mistakes culminating in his own humiliation. Title of my autobiography, Taylor. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> Can I, and then I had one thing that I think is the opposite answer, but I'm going with it anyway. Because I don't think the Landon Donovan goal against Algeria is particularly pretty. I don't think it's particularly like attractive. And so... In, a, in that way, I guess you could say it's overrated because it's just sort of a scramble. There's a loose ball and he puts it home. But I think it's the most definitively U.S. men's national team goal of all time in that it's dying minutes. It's never say die. Everybody's just fighting and scrambling and trying to make something happen. So it's not pretty and it's certainly not intentional, but I would never, ever say it's overrated. So it's, it's somewhere in that category, but not in the overrated uh, nomination. All right. Thank you very much, Ben, for the question. I apologize to the nation of the Netherlands getting a hammering in this question. (laughs) Uh, Austin Powers' father, uh, Michael Caine and gold member, would be very pleased with the outcome of this question. We'll take a very quick break. We come back. Plenty more. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early. There are teams that will leave that business very late and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. 
So the Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions, including this one from Nick Gillock, who says, Why is stoppage time not more precise? It seems like stoppage time rarely reflects the true amount of time lost during a game, and the technology certainly exists to make an accurate count. Are there other factors that need to be considered? It's a very interesting question here from Nick, uh, because um, injury time, added time, stoppage time, is at the referee's discretion, and is often massively inaccurate. Uh, I found some statistics from 538, who are good at statistics, who looked at the 2018 World Cup, who found that the, the uh, extra time was wildly off in many games. The, the, ad, the average added time, say 5.38, flashed on the board for the 32 games they looked at was 6.59, which included both halves. By their calculations, the time should have been added was 13.10. So about <laughs> half as much time was added as should have been by 5.38 calculations in this particular exercise. Uh, Graham, what is the correct answer to Nick's question? So I don't think there is a black and white answer to this, but my reading of how stoppage time works in soccer is that there are so many stoppages in an average game that it would be almost impossible to be truly precise, at least the way things are now without a a stop clock. So on average, you get around, and this differs per league and per team, but generally speaking, you get around 60 minutes of actual soccer per 90-minute match. Um, and yes, you can sort of judge how much stoppage time should be added for things like subs and injuries and goals. Those are an easy one. But what about all the tiny little micro stoppages that you have? You know, players taking an extra couple seconds at a throw-in or goalkeepers doing the same at goal kicks. And if referees added stoppage times uh, stoppage time precisely over the course of a full 90 minutes, you would end up with uh, an extra, like, well, you say they're around 13 minutes. I think that is probably due to what the rules say about 30 seconds for a goal and, and everything like that. But if you were to take all the little micro stoppages as well, you, you'd end up with another 30 minutes of the match. So maybe that is what we want, because this is a discussion that's been had in, in recent years. Maybe we should shorten matches and maybe we should have a stop clock for stoppages. I'm just saying this is a consideration and an ex- explanation for the way it is at the moment. All right, Arsene Wenger wanted to shorten games. Okay, fair, fair enough. Graham. <laughs> that was Florentino Perez. Wenger wants to change the throw-ins. Very true, very true. Taylor, your thoughts on this one? I mean, I think Graham has done a really great job. I agree with pretty much everything he said, if not all of what he said, because I think you could even see when the official will say when a team is clearly wasting time, you'll see him or her gesture to the watch and show like the goalkeeper when they're waiting to take a restart. Like, I'm putting you on the clock now or I'm stopping the clock. And the reason why he's gesturing is to show I know what you're doing. But I think it, it also shows now he is actually stopping the clock because it's stoppage time. That's what it's meant to be, the time that the watch is stopped. And he's not going to stop it for a throw-in or a goal kick necessarily, as Graham said. But I think once teams are taking deliberate advantage of it, that's where you, I guess, will see it more. Uh, to the overall question though i think again graham uh did a a great job my only other thing i would add is basically i think it could be an emperor has no clothes sort of moment or a little kid who doesn't know they're bleeding moment and doesn't know they're hurt yet moment that if you expose that truth of if the fourth official held up a board that said 15 minutes it's an immediate talking point it's going to get international coverage this crazy game where there were 15 minutes and just a normal league game added and i think it kind of exposes the reality of how much time we're missing 
And until FIFA decides we want to make that a reality, we truly want to show how much time is being wasted, and then we're going to change the way it's officiated or the way time is kept, you sort of can't afford to do that because you're going to have games that end up being over two hours long because you're adding in so much time. And I think that just becomes a distraction. You're going to have coaches complaining and fighting and bickering and quibbling about every little thing and keeping their own time for goal kicks and throw-ins. And so I think it's basically an agreement to let things be inefficient because otherwise it's going to lead to a bunch of rules. And as we saw with VAR, that doesn't necessarily lead to clarity and speedy decision-making. Yeah. yeah. Taylor, the answer, the answer to the question, as far as I'm aware, and this lines up exactly with what you and grandma said, stoppage time isn't more precise, Nick, just because people don't want it to be. No one cares enough to actually change it or implement it. I looked at effective playing time, which is basically the reference to what Graham said earlier about about 60 minutes of the ball being in play per game. And MLS this year so far on average, it's about 55 minutes. There's just less soccer than 90 minutes, and the referees are fine with that, and the players seem to be fine with that. Matt Pence wrote an article for The Athletic a couple of years back now about this whole stoppage time question of why isn't there more, because there should be. And that's pretty clear when you watch a game, there absolutely should be. But it just sounds like, yeah, players don't really keep track of it. They just know it's close to the end of the game, so they need to try their best to either score or hold on to the lead or, or push whatever it is. Players don't really care. Referees have some freedom based on how the laws are written, Law 7, Section 3 to be to have governance and have judgment in these cases and they can kind of do what they want and everybody's pretty okay with the status quo joe what do you think about the idea of a stop clock in general because i kind of think it's quite exciting that we don't know exactly when the referee is going to blow the whistle to me that's like a fundamental part of the game and also i understand like if if we did have a stop clock atletico madrid games could be like four hours long yeah, that's that's really the reason why I am not thrilled about the idea of a stop clock. I, I just don't I'm not really bothered with how things are now. It doesn't upset me. I think it's a fine system. It is flawed and weird, and I, I can imagine it being a little confusing to folks that are just trying to learn about soccer. Wait, that's not the right number. Why isn't there more time in every other sport? There's a much more dedicated and and careful timekeeping method. Soccer is just kind of not that way. And after what you watch it enough, I think you sort of become okay with that. So it's less for me about the excitement of the final whistle. I could I could kind of go either way on that. But, but it is much more about I feel like soccer is okay in this current iteration. And we don't really need to mess with this to make games any longer than they are. When I first started watching NFL games, I was amazed how they would deliberate so for so long over whether to add like two seconds onto the clock. And this was apparently like such a, a big decision that could decide a match. Or they do that in basketball as well, don't they? Um, where they have like a, an actual buzzer at the end of the, of the game and that's it. Just a very alien thing initially to me when I started watching American sports compared to my experience in soccer. Yeah, and there's those moments sometimes at the end of NFL games, Graham, where like there's 30 seconds left or less than 30 seconds left and they all just quit and run on the field whilst the time is yeah. still running down. Or, or, or the flip side of that is there'll be about seven seconds left and there's a points difference of like six or something or even more and they'll be like, we can still win this, we can still turn this around. <laughs> I'm like, how? There's six seconds left in the clock, but I have seen them do it, so now I know, I guess. Indeed. Uh, Nick, thank you very much for that question. Let's move on to Kenneth Sidon. Hey, Kenneth. Um, Kenneth says, I'm an eccentric, connected billionaire. Ooh, and I want to and have the ability to give you a club in any country at any level and give you unlimited budget to run in any way with no pressure for results from me. Wow, good deal, Kenneth. My only requirements are that 
A, you create a top-down identity for the club and you stick with that identity for better or worse. And B, it provides you with your most personal enjoyment slash satisfaction slash entertainment. Which country or league, says Kenneth, are we going to? And what is that identity? Oh, yeah. Quite the proposition from Kenneth. He is a subscriber, so maybe he is an eccentric billionaire, Joe. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, those those $10 a month, I think, really do illustrate Kenneth's wealth. Kenneth, I love this question. Thank you for um, funding these adventures and exercises, because I will be messaging you after this to take you up on this offer. So I choose, in terms of my location, this isn't going to surprise anybody. I choose the U.S. I'm choosing MLS as the place where my team is going to be. I think being a part of the league's growth, and Taylor, you and I talked about this on Tuesday, would be cool and satisfying, and I'd find some personal enjoyment in that. Uh, I think that's probably MLS's current pitch to prospective owners for expansion teams and for new owners coming in to purchase already existing teams. I think that's maybe their their biggest value proposition right now. So if I get a team, I'm going to put it out here in Phoenix because that's where I'm from, that's where I live, and I think that would be also satisfying and enjoyable. And I'm going to get Kenneth to build the coolest indoor floating stadium that ever exists, the first floating stadium that ever exists because he has unlimited money, it sounds like. Floating on water or on air? Yeah. (laughs) On air. Above downtown Phoenix. (laughs) Wow. There's not a lot of space in downtown Phoenix right now, certainly not enough for a soccer stadium, but there is in the air, and I've just solved that whole issue. I don't know how we're going to work with air traffic control, but whatever. Kenneth has connections. How do fans get up there? Uh, Sky Transit, Graham, obviously. Ground to Sky Transit. Of course. Uh, Yeah, of course. Joe, if you're not careful, you're going to win the 2030 World Cup with a big (laughs) like this. We're going to have floating stadiums everywhere. That seems to appeal. I mean... (sighs) Is that bad? I feel like it's great. I feel like it's really cool. Um, so I'm going to have some some cool ground-to-sky transit and vice versa. There'll be AC inside. It's a covered stadium. All that good stuff. Very modern. Um, it'll it'll be great. In terms of my Very identity, modern. and this is, this is the part that I also enjoyed putting together. So my tactical identity, and then I have some off-the-field identity stuff as well in terms of how the club is run. We're going to press. We're going to be vertical in the right moments. We're going to also try to keep the ball in in place in quality possession soccer. We're going to play attractive soccer. I know everybody says that, but we're actually going to do it because we're going to be more detail-focused than any other team in MLS and eventually, hopefully, more than any other team around. Certainly, MLS is a much lower bar than trying to match other teams around the world right now. But this is my sort of front office approach. We're going to be analytics focused. Again, this is very on brand. But I think that's the the joy of this question. I'm going to hire all of American soccer analysis as just a group to consult and work inside the team. And they're going to just do lots of smart math things to get us good players. And I'm also going to take full advantage of all of the intricacies in MLS's roster rules. I'm choosing to think of them as intricacies and not annoying hindrances because you kind of have to, otherwise you're just going to be sad. So I'm going to hire Paul and Sam as front office consultants. I'll find a GM somewhere. I don't know how I'm going to do that, but I'm going to hire Paul and Sam to come in and consult on some of the roster rules and mechanisms because I'm pretty sure they know more about some of those things than at least current some current MLS front office members, GMs, technical directors, all that good stuff. So Phoenix, Floating Stadium, Sky Transit, uh, air conditioning, pressing, possession, analytics, and Paul and Sam. Boom. That's my pitch. I feel like I feel like the plot to every movie in which artificial intelligence exists and then takes over is the idea that it it immediately recognizes like, like humanity is either a threat or a threat to itself and must be controlled. And Joe, you're not advocating for a floating superstructure based on analytics that evaluates data and then takes a cold hard look at it. I feel like you are <laughs> basically setting up a reboot of Terminator, and I don't know how to feel about it, though I do appreciate that it will be a very modern floating stadium. This ain't your grandma's floating soccer yeah, stadium. That's exactly 
exactly. at least we have that. Taylor, you got right to the heart of my pitch. Thank you for that. This is not your grandparents' floating stadium. This is a 2022 floating stadium with all of the amenities and quality of 2022. Jo- Joe's going to take over the planet. Yeah. Joe's going to have this thing built in the sky, and NOFC is still going to be at Yankee Stadium. <laughs> <laughs> how would the plumbing work? I've got so many logistical Graham, questions. Open your mind, dude. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> sky to ground transit can take more than just people. We'll just put it that way. I, think, I, I like the idea that it just floats over the opposition city that they're playing that week, and then uh, maybe here, you clear the here, plumbing out that way. That's actually here, cool. Here is our cutting-edge, state-of-the-art floating stadium. Please get in the poop bus to get up to it as a fan. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, Graham, where have you gone with the old extension? I, mean, I think that's money. it. Graham won. Joe's idea with poop buses thrown in. Let's just call it a day. <laughs> so, talking about poop buses, I'm going to, uh, down the poop house route. I'd go to Argentina. Argentina, and I would I'd build a club that has a whole identity built on being the biggest poop houses in soccer. So it'd be like it'd be like uh, hockey. There'd be a fight in every match. It'd be part of the ticket price. There would be an anthem that all the fans sing and chant along to as the players come out the tunnel. Maybe the Birds of War song from Always Sunny. <laughs> yeah. uh, all, and and all the poop housery would be taught from a young age. It would be the Academy of Poop Housery. It'd be where all the great poop houses got their start. Other poop house clubs like Atletico Madrid and Stoke City, they would visit to find out what we were getting right and why our players bite harder than other players. And Diego Simeone would be the honorary president. I would be the owner. He would be the president. We would both wear all black to every game. This is my dream. Wow. I'm impressed. But how high does the stadium float? <laughs> well, the stadium is just a, a, a giant... Uh, it's, it's Sergio Ramos's face, actually, ah. the stadium. And his mouth is open, and that's the, roof, the, the opening in the roof of the stadium. It's just you go into his mouth. Oh, wow. Graham, you know how like stadiums will have like writing on the seats so that when they're empty, it will say like FC Barcelona or whatever. Sure. Uh, my rule for yours is that one side of the stadium has to say uh, because we have feathers dot dot dot, and the other half of the stadium has to say but the muscles of men. <laughs> yes, absolutely. War. I was I was I was counting on that anyway. That was Perfect. part of my Perfect. proposal. So. <laughs> Always sunny reference listener, in case you're not a watcher. Um, my team is similar in premise, Graham, but a bit less exciting because I am just going to straight up take over AFC Wimbledon. And I, this is predicated on the fact that AFC Wimbledon is a fan model team and it's predicated on the fact yeah, that they'll whoa, let whoa, me Yeah, whoa, 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 whoa. Have you just become the very thing that you hate, Ryan? Yeah, you've just made yourself the bad guy. Hang on. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um <laughs> Because I'm not going to okay, be a that's bad owner. Yeah, it's I'm going to have sold. Yeah, it's going to be good <laughs> intentions. Because what I'm going to do, Graham, people love nostalgia. People love things that used to happen, and they want things to go back to the way they were. So that's what I'm going to do with Wimbledon. I'm going to make them the crazy gang like they were in the 80s and the 90s, and all the fans will praise me and build a throne for me at Plough Lane. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> so uh, the crazy gang, if you don't know, listener, was sort of a misfit team who went from non-league to top flight um, in the space of in exactly 10 years, in fact. Non-league to top flight in 10 years. Two years later than that, beating Liverpool in the FA Cup, who were the kings of Europe at the time. Uh, and Wimbledon stayed in the top flight, um, eventually in the Premier League, until 2000. So 15 years in the top flight as well. No one expected uh, Wimbledon to do it. Very, very small budget. and you know, A pretty humble team who had Chelsea and Fulham and bigger teams in their backyard. Um, but the culture of Wimbledon was poop housery, essentially, Graham. Uh, a very physical team. So I'd like to bring back that crazy gang ethos and see if it works in the modern context. It worked back in the day when, let's be honest, soccer was a bit slower. But I want to see 
if the tactics that were employed, not just the physicality, not just Vinnie Jones putting his elbow into people, but the tactics themselves work as well, because I think they might. Because when you look at what Wimbledon were back then, it wasn't just brutish force. It was some pretty good nafs going behind it as well. It was very direct. It was very route one. There was, you know, a lot of midfield work rate going on, a lot of tight marking, uh, a very disciplined, solid back four that would sit in a low block when it was needed to, you know, t- players who would break with pace from midfield when necessary, a lot of getting the ball into the box and quite a lot of area balls upfield, a lot of hoofing it, I'll admit, but a lot of aggression as well. And I think there's a lot of traits there that say Marcelo Bielsa would employ. So so I would, I'd be fascinated to see if that old style would fit in a new context because there's going to be something new that comes along eventually. Maybe this is it. And you think about all the, the coaching that was at that Wimbledon team, people like Don Howe who went on to coach for England. He was Bobby Robson's assistant with England. They were, they, they were no fools. So that is my dream, Kenneth. Please make it happen with so, part of your billions. So are you literally bringing back the the players or are you instilling these principles in new players? Is Vinnie Jones going to be starting for AFC Wimbledon now? Possibly. Again, in 2022? Possibly. Uh, but more the ethos, Graham. More that I'll, I'll probably just get a bunch of Atletico Madrid players. I'll probably get Simeone in as well. Um, just to see if that kind of culture could be brought back in the modern context where things aren't as they were, shall we say. What do we think? Taylor, do you like my idea? I think, Ryan, I'm just sort of mesmerized by the idea that you have billions of dollars in resources and you're basically advocating for, let's just go back to like punching and hitting. I mean, I kind of respect (laughs) it. It's not where I thought you were going to go. But, you know, to each their own. I dig it. Uh, The more I think about it, Taylor, the more I feel like I sound like I voted for Brexit uh, with this discussion. Sorry, I'm I'm immediately withdrawing my team. Sorry, Kenneth. (laughs) There there is a little bit of like, let the men be men and we'll all go back to the normal (laughs) days when things were better. Uh, for a certain group of people at a certain group of time, yeah. yeah. I like how I like how Joe's proposal was very, you know, stats relate, uh, related and stadium in the sky, and uh, Ryan's is basically just mud and dirt. I should have gone first. That's the moral here, Graham. I should have gone first. <laughs> Taylor, have we had yours? Uh, we have not, and I guess if we're going to go on brand, mine's pretty hipster. Although Joe <laughs> uh, talking about MLS now has me realizing the actual answer would be DC United. I'm going to buy DC United and make them. Not sanitized, not standardized, but more fun. Uh, get some more fan groups in there, make it a good time. Uh, but my more thought-out answer, uh, which is going to be much to the chagrin of a certain co-host, uh, would be Italy. I would like to go to Italy. My wife uh, and daughter are working on their Italian citizenship, so maybe there's a realistic possibility. And I think if I'm looking to have a happy life and wife in this experiment, Italy is where we're heading. And I think we are heading to Siena, currently playing in the Ooh. third division. They went bankrupt two years ago, so I don't think there's there's any way I'm getting labeled as a glory hunter. I'm not taking over a club with, you know, Juve or Napoli or something like that with a ton of history. Obviously, uh, Siena, I think, started in 1904, so plenty of history there, but not at that same level. And I think then I'm essentially going to create uh, a an Italian Ajax uh, with some St. Pauli influences as well. Because uh, I'm going to try to make them, we're going to emphasize the academy. It's going to be about teaching them how to play a sort of high-intensity, high-pressing style with some possession behind it. But I thought about if you're trying to get a team promoted into Serie A and then stay there, I think as the talent increases, it's harder and harder to play like open, expansive football. Just ask Fulham. So we're going to play high-energy, high-running, high-pressing football. Maybe we'll get some analytics in there too, but it's going to play heavily on the uh, the history of Siena, they've got like the bareback horse races that draw from the different districts of the city. So it's going to be all about representing your city. We're going to drape them in an Italian flag. But at the same time, I think so many Italian clubs also have just that sort of 
rightly or wrongly, that that hint of there's like racist fans, there's uh, racism in the stands, there's ethnic stereotyping, and I think I would like to go the opposite of that way. So I'm going to buy Sienna, and then uh, if I'm going to make them, if I'm supposed to be happy in this one, I can't have a team that's like hard right wing. Not that Sienna is, but I'm going the other way. So I'm going to make them more of like a left wing club that's more about inclusivity and bringing in people who might otherwise be uh, not included at other organizations elsewhere. And so yeah, we're going Italy meets Ajax meets St. Pauli with an emphasis on the academy and pressing with rapid ball movement into the attack. There we go. That's my pitch. So Taylor, yeah. sorry, does your stadium float or or no? Yeah. See, I think I think with some renovations, we got to get them back up to maybe Serie B. Then we'll have a floating stadium yeah. that will get the players interested. It's Champions League football. No floating stadium. Yes, Joe. Sure. I think I am stealing that. Going point going on what Ryan says about Italian building standards, yeah, yeah. it will float, but not intentionally. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, my my laptop electrocutes me when I plug it in. They cannot build a floating stadium here. I'm sorry. <laughs> Kenneth is connected, happen. Ryan. Kenneth is connected. Don't doubt Kenneth. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I, and I think my initial a- answer was going to be Germany. But it like the reality of 50 plus one and how unpopular I would be doing that kind of came into the Ryan equation. Ryan has quickly. bought AFC Wimbledon as a single benefactor owner. I think you'd be fine going to Germany and breaking their <laughs> 50 plus one rule. <laughs> That's probably true. But I don't think people would like it. And I want to be happy where I go. Yeah, well, I'm sure you'd be very happy with that very popular left-wing team here in Italy, Taylor. They'll love that. (laughs) Got to start somewhere. Got to start somewhere. (laughs) Uh, Thank you very much, Kenneth. Excellent question. We'll be back with a few more after this break. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, who would like to remind you when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. You don't want to end up with Ryan Graham and Joe. Just kidding. Just kidding. Very much just kidding, because I was very fortunate to have the three of them all join the show. And I had existing relationships with all three of them that allowed me to know that they could handle the 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 uh, the amount of work that would be required, that they could be diligent in their tasks and be very effective on mic. And all three of them are. But again, that's because you have the existing relationship. If you don't feel like you have that with potential hires, then LinkedIn is going to make it very, very easy, and they're going to make it feel like you're connected to that person. They have a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because it gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. But when you are setting the requirements and making it very specific as to what you're looking for, you can very quickly narrow it down to find the right candidate for that position. Hiring is easy when you have that many candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring, and you can too. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash TSS. That's linkedin.com slash TSS to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Thank you very much to LinkedIn for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Here's a question from Miles McNichol. All right. The TSS team are tasked last minute with leading the USMNT to the World Cup final. Wow. Who takes on which roles? Who's the head coach? Who's the assistant coach? Who's the statistician? Etc. and so on. First of all, I'm thrilled that the United States are presumably in the semifinals, or I've just qualified from the semifinals to the final. And last minute... We have been trusted with bringing the US to the World Cup final. I think I have the correct answer to this, gents. So I'm just going to run through it now. Um, 
My choices are Taylor Rockwell is going to be head coach, you know, give Sage advice. He's level-headed, even if he thinks he can start a team in Italy without it breaking completely. Um, I'm going to have Joe as head of analytics because, you know, boy loves the numbers, and I think he'd be very, very good at that. Graham, you're the kit man. Yep. No explanation needed. And I think I would be the water boy or the guy who collects the cones after training. I think that's as qualified as I am. Stay hydrated, everybody. <laughs> um, right, I like it. I like it a lot. Uh, I had I had something relatively similar. So I saw Taylor as as the head coach. He's the head coach of this TSS team, and he's actually good at soccer and has some coaching experience. Taylor, were those children? They were children, right? I mean, uh, yes, in terms of their age, but in terms of their heart and spirit, Joe, they were World Cup winners. Exactly. So Taylor is, <laughs> is perfect for the head coaching role. Um, I have myself down as assistant coach. Um, I don't think I know quite enough about stats to be totally comfortable in the stats role, but it can be sort of like a statsy assistant coach. We're going to go that way. I, uh, I did think about, and this is, this is what qualifies me, fellas, I did think about getting my USSFD license once. So that's a pretty high bar. I didn't get it, but I thought about it. So head coach Taylor, assistant coach me. Graham, I have you done as kit man as well. I could see you as a statistician. You, you brought out some of the numbers when we do those USMT scouting episodes, and I can sort of envision you creating some sort of groundbreaking new metric at the tackle fishing shop slash haircut <laughs> slash grocery store, whatever that place is. I think that place would give you some, some wicked inspiration. And then, Ryan? True. I have you as vibes expert slash man manager extraordinaire. And, and this is my reasoning. A host is... Uh, is a man manager. You are the man manager of the TSS crew. You have to point the conversation in the right direction at the right time, setting that particular person up to succeed while also elevating the quality that is being contributed to by the entire group and improving the show or the game to bring the analogy home here, guys. I think, Ryan, as man manager slash vibe expert, you would you would fill that role quite well. Vibes. I was born to do it, Joe. Thanks. I <laughs> you love were. it. You were. <laughs> <laughs> Taylor, what you got? Um, I, I love Joe's answer because I had Ryan as director of vibes. So thank you for that, Joe. <laughs> yep. Uh, I had Joe as director of analytics. I had me as the assistant and I had Graham as head coach because we're talking about the U.S. men's national team. And I do think uh, to, to be respected in, in American soccer, it helps to have an accent is, I think, how it tends to work out. So I, I feel like the one players... Uh, yeah, and I think the players would look at me and be like, who's this upstart, like 30-something American who thinks he can coach us? Whereas Graham could come in and they'd be like, well, he's from Scotland. He's probably got I'm some good ideas Fergie. about the game. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. From the black and then I can, And then I can also be the one who has <laughs> way too convoluted ideas that Graham then kind of cuts down to succinct and digestible pieces. Like run and shoot. <laughs> yeah, because mine would be like, you know, I think what we need to do is get some more energy and cover more distance. And so I think that's going to require us to kind of accelerate in moments, but in other moments, maybe not as much. And I think you would boil that down to like, all right, so run harder. Got it. Cool. Yeah, yeah exactly. OK, I can see that a little bit. I had, Taylor, I had you as the, the man manager in my team because I think you need to obviously need to know how to deal with people and how to talk to people for that role. And well, that's not one for me, is it? And then I'd have Ryan as the head coach because he's our host and head coach coach involves a lot of public speaking and well again that's not one for me either so I, then I had Joe as the statistician because you need to obviously be good with numbers and data and really understand the mechanics of football and again well that's not really one for me either so I had myself as the guy who brings in the oranges at halftime or <laughs> in my case it would be uh, it would be a pie at halftime because nothing says elite level performance at a world cup like mystery meat and murky sauce that'll get you ready for the second half Graham's pie yeah. guy I love it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they call him 3.14 around these parts. Um, I, 
Math joke. Thank you. You're welcome. I, I, Graham, all things considered, with any of these lineups, I'm not sure the US are winning the World Cup, particularly if we give them pies. Uh, well, it's worked. For, it worked. For, you wanted to take Wimbledon back to the 1980s or whatever because that might be a way forward. So I say we give them pies and see what happens. See, I give them pints. You give them pies. That's the difference. That's the difference. Well, we can give them both. <laughs> it's not. It's not mutually exclusive. Normally, a, p- a pint does go with a pie, and a pie goes with a pint. So they're good. Uh, they're they're bedfellows. Taylor, I'm starting to think we shouldn't let Ryan and Graham near the U.S. men's national team. Uh, yeah, I've I've been feeling that way. Okay, but I'm cool. Glad you're this on is board. cool. This cool. is poten- <laughs> this is potentially why England and Scotland haven't won a World Cup for decades between them, mm. and Scotland have never won a World Cup ever. <laughs> I was going to say, speak for, speak for your own team there. Unofficial, bud. they're the unofficial World Cup champions, were they not? Uh, yeah, in 1967, when there we, we beat England as the <laughs> champions, and we never Ooh. ever discuss it or mention it that we beat England when, when they were World no. Cup champions, and it never makes us look sad and pathetic. Ever that never happens. And Scotland <laughs> were never beaten again after that. They're still World Cup champions. It's great. Indeed. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful stuff. Uh, Miles, thank you very much for an excellent question there. A couple more. Robert Cordova says, which teams do the Total Soccer Show think are the top contenders going into the Women's Euros? The Women's Euros, of course, starting on July 6th. It's not far away, uh, running to the 31st. It's the 13th edition of the tournament. We've got 16 teams playing across 10 venues in England. The final is going to be at Wembley. It's actually bumping the Community Shield to Leicester um, because they're both taking place on the same I don't think I knew that. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Uh, Community Shields in Leicester this this season. Scheduled for the same day. Scheduled for the same day. That's quite cool. Yeah, on the 31st. Um, So the reigning champions from the 2017 edition are the Netherlands. Denmark were the runners-up. Netherlands, of course, also runners-up at the 2019 Women's World Cup. Graham, we've got Spain as the favourites. England are next, Mm. according to the old bookmakers. Then we've got France, Netherlands and Germany. Those be the top contenders for the bookmakers. Yeah, and I, those are pretty much the teams that I would pick out as well. So I watched a lot of Barcelona in the, in, in the Champions League this season and the season before when they won the, the Women's Champions League. And they have just an exceptional team at the moment. And obviously there's a lot of overlap between that Barcelona team and the Spain team at the moment that, that you mentioned. The, the obvious names there, uh, Alexia Pateas, uh, Jennifer Hermoso, Bon Mate, all world-class players. Then you look to England as well, and I think they've got a good collection of, of high-level players. Jill Scott, Steph Houghton, Ellen White. These are all players who have been in that team for a long time. Um, names that will be familiar to English football fans. As I say, they've been around for a long time. I think they've got 300 caps between them. And it feels like they have been, England have been building to this tournament for a long time. Not just because they are the host nation, but because they do have a lot of those players who are either in the peak of their career or are very experienced and have been here before. And obviously they have uh, Wagman as, as their manager, who last won the the Euros with Netherlands in, in 2017. So I think England have a, a, a they, they have genuine uh, a genuine chance of winning this tournament and should believe in their chances then then France are always the, the kind of perennial underachievers at international level in the, in the women's game they've got a lot of uh, good players there's a lot of overlap with that Lyon team that won the, the Champions League this season and then I'm also interested to see how the Netherlands are going to do under Mark Parsons who of course is the the old uh, Portland Thorns coach um, and he did a good job in, in, in the US so I'm interested to see if that carries over into the international game with a talented squad that are the defending champions Graham, I uh, was in London at the weekend and they had the England women's kit on display in one of the stores. 
It is a beauty. The the badge. So is that the the home one with the kind of silver iridescent yeah, badge? Iridescent badge. Yeah, it's nice. It looks fantastic. I think I might pick one up. Very very. There's good. a really nice training kit, which kind of reminds me. This is maybe a slightly niche reference, but it kind of reminds me. You know the surface of the Epcot ball, the golf ball. It's like that as a training kit with the iridescent badge, and it's very nice. So it's spiky. No, it's like a golf ball. The Epcot balls. What do you What do you envisage when you see the Epcot ball? Uh, divoted. It's triangles. It's big triangles, isn't it? So yes, it's kind of spiky. It's triangles. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. I'll look out for that one. Taylor, any more thoughts on uh, the contenders of the Women's Euros? Uh, yeah, I think Graham's done a great job covering a lot of bases. I do think Vigman uh, makes England, if not better, than I think a more exciting team because she has the kind of pedigree from the Euros and uh, second place at the World Cup. So I think she she could be a difference maker for a very talented England team. Uh, Spain, for all the reasons Graham mentioned, though it sounds like it will be a confusing blend because they could start eight of that 11 Barcelona team, two foreign players on that Barca team, and then one player uh, has retired. But I think you could have that kind of core spine from Barca. It seems like they're going to mix it up and play a different style. So who knows if they will find the right chemistry. But I think that makes makes Spain really compelling. France, I'm really excited to watch because they're very good, but also chaos, just pure chaos. Uh, I don't know how much y'all got into this one. I went down a rabbit hole. But here's the summary. Basically, uh, Corinne Diacre has been in charge since 2017. Prior to the 2019 Women's World Cup, she left off Marie Antoinette Catoto. Top scorer in the league at that time after that season. France struggled to score goals. Wendy Renard was their top goal scorer in the 2019 Women's World Cup. And obviously they get knocked out by the United States, who go on to win. But that's still seen as a quarterfinal exit. It's not as good as they were hoping for, even if it's against the eventual champions. After the tournament, uh, Diacre came out, publicly criticized certain players, specifically uh, Eugène Le Somme. Uh, forgive me for the pronunciation. I'm doing my best with the French. Uh, but basically then her teammates came to support her, and that led to teenage being dropped. Buhati retires indefinitely. Now Amandine Henri, the longtime captain, has been dropped and won't be included in this Euro squad. Those three players alone had, I think, over 400 caps for France. But France have continued to perform well. They're, I think they're third in the FIFA rankings. They had a very successful uh, Tournée de France, where they beat the Netherlands, Bel- uh, Brazil, and Finland. They've beaten England in some friendlies. They comfortably qualified for the 2023 World Cup. So there is reason for optimism, and it's a young, exciting team. You'll still have Wendy Renard as the kind of anchor of that defense. But there are a ton of players that maybe people know or remember from 2019 or beyond that won't be there, and that will be a major talking point if this tournament doesn't go well. So there's a lot to figure out, and they could be very successful and win the whole thing. They could blow up and get knocked out in the group stage, and I think we'll have a new manager for France after that. Yeah, the men's team's so stable. It's curious <laughs> yeah, right? that the, uh, the, the women's team should be that way. Did you say one of the places was called Marie Antoinette? Uh, yes, I did. Marie Antoinette Catoto. Revolutionary stuff. Like right? Yeah. Boo. Very good. Thank Boo. you. Thank you, Joe. I'll be here all week. Um, oh. Joe, any more to add on this one? I think it's been pretty comprehensively answered. Yeah, agreed. Spain, I think, is is my favorite for this tournament. Uh, and, and Graham and Taylor have kind of already illustrated why that might be. England, the Netherlands, France, maybe rounding out that top four. Wonderful stuff. Robert, thank you for the question. One more for this show from Greyhair Gaming. 
Question for fantasy soccer expert Graham Rothman. With the World Cup in the middle of the season, how do you think it impacts FPL or other fantasy leagues? Will some of the leading players be taken off as early subs in games to avoid injury or keep them fresh for the World Cup? This is interesting, Graham, because I think I mentioned Mm. on a show recently how Tottenham have six league games and potentially nine games in October. So Harry Kane is going to be dead on his feet by the time he arrives (laughs) in Qatar. So it it is a a question for the fantasy lovers out there. It's going to be chaos. I think it's going to have a huge impact on fantasy this year. And there was a graphic going around Twitter the other day, which did a very good job of illustrating the fixture pileup there is going to be next season due to the World Cup. And one of the first thoughts I had was fantasy football is going to be a nightmare this season. I I think some of the leading players will miss games entirely. I expect a lot of them will be given a longer break after the World Cup is, is over, particularly ones that make the latter rounds and certainly the final. But I also think certain players will be not rested so much, but not played played in every single game and play every single minute before the World Cup as well. I think there will be some agreements with clubs and managers before they go off to the World Cup. So that is going to make things very difficult in fantasy as well. And it's been a difficult couple of seasons in fantasy with COVID and all the rescheduled games last season in the Premier League was a a bit of a mess. I don't think things are going to get much easier. I am interested to see if FPL if they adjust their 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 prices depending on maybe some players that could miss some games so players that are are not involved in the world cup they're obviously going to be slightly more valuable to your team than maybe someone like harry kane who could miss a lot of games for tottenham next season so i wonder if maybe that might be reflected in some of the price reveals although i went back to 2018 to see if there was anything similar even though it was still a summer world cup and there was there was nothing like that after the euros as well there was nothing as well they didn't change the prices for a lot of those england players remember some of them came back later from the tournament they were still priced at the same level so i'd be surprised if they do change the prices but um there'd be some justification to them doing so so what i'm hearing graham is it's basically going to be like you've picked your entire squad from peps man city because you never know if any of them are going to play week yeah. in week out <laughs> exactly that thought did cross my mind was man city that they're they're going to be even more difficult to, to pick from than usual i just stay away from man city players because pep loves to rotate his team and that is not good for my fpl hopes in Indeed. All right, I think that just about wraps up listener questions for this episode. Graham, wonderfully answered on that last question and all others. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. Tater Rockwell, pleasure as always, sir. Uh, you as well. And I think the most important thing we learned from this entire recording process is 2030 World Cup must feature floating stadiums or we're not going. And put buses. Also that. <laughs> Welcome to Phoenix, baby. <laughs> Joe Lowry, thank you very much. We uh, look forward to going to Phoenix. Get those blueprints ready, baby. On it, Ryan Bailey. Listener, thank you so much for joining us on this intrepid journey. We'll be back on the feed with another one very shortly. But for now, bye. Bye.